At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 689th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. And tonight we are doing an Ask a Farmer session with Scott Murray. Scott has 48 years of organic agriculture production experience in the United States in Mexico. I didn't know you were that old, Scott. He has a multitude of experience with conservation, food production, environmental leadership, including as an elected California conservation official for the last 27 years. Scott also specializes in farmland preservation projects utilizing smart growth principles. These days he does farm creation and consulting as his primary work, including work on a farm growing coffee in Southern California, which had its first harvest and sold out in one day at an unbelievable $796 a pound. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. Welcome, Scott. Welcome, Greg. The, the best part about that is that's rock star prices because the client is a rock star. He's a rock star. Yeah, exactly. However, some coffee in a very small segment of the market sells for as much as $2,000 a pound. Who so pays, who pays that for it? Well, people obviously have a lot more money than me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So tonight we're going to be talking about being a farmer. So Mr. Murray, let us start with what it takes to be a farmer. And, and I made this up a few years ago to kind of get people into the thought process of becoming an urban farmer. And what I said was you grow food, you share it, and you name your farm. I don't care if I don't care if you're sharing it with your family, you can still call yourself a farmer. And the reason I did that is because when you step from being a gardener, which is generally a hobby, and step into being a farmer, which is generally a job, it kind of changes something in the way we think. And then when you actually name your farm, it creates a bigger conversation out there in the world. You know, like here in Phoenix, people know the urban farm because I've been talking about it and naming it that for almost 20 years now. So it almost, it takes on a life of its own. Let's jump in to see beyond that, what might be three or four steps to actually starting a farm? Well, the most important thing is if they're interested in being the farmer, what do they like to eat? Uh. <laughs> because right. if you grow a bunch of stuff that you don't even like to eat, it's really hard to sell. You mm. know, it's like, I hate cabbage, but I have these beautiful cabbages to sell you. You know, it's like, doesn't sound right. Oh my gosh. So, that's the same advice I tell people with fruit trees. Cause people come to me and say, 
what fruit trees should I plant? And I'll say, what do you like to eat? And this is exactly it. So first off, it's what you like to eat. Because as a farmer, you'll always have lots of food to bring home that are seconds and not perfect to go to the, your chosen marketplace. The tomato that somebody stuck their finger into that's still wonderful to eat if we eat it tonight. Or the bell pepper that's kind of folded and ugly looking, but really good bell pepper. So first off, it's what we like to eat. And then it's really good if it's what your family likes to eat. Oh, yeah. Um, Because I used to bring a lot of food home, you know, and my family would go, oh, we're not interested in helping you process that. More okra, right? uh, Well, okra is one of those. But I had the opportunity to work with some Iraqi growers. And the okra that they grow in the desert of Iraq is completely different and really wonderful. Uh, right? I was like, wow, what a, what a learning process. So the three or four steps would be, number one, what do you like to eat? Because you should grow things that you like to eat because then you can sell them because you're excited about them. Mm-hmm. Like I love peaches. So I'm growing peaches now as part of my research work. I've gotten to eat some of your wonderful desert peaches mm-hmm. over the years when you've shared them with me. And I always enjoyed them. I learned the hard way that if I had planted a peach tree at every place I've lived in 68 years, I would have eaten a lot more good peaches. Right. You know, and it's like plant a tree. But one of the big things I tell folks is think about what they'd like to grow and then start growing it on a very small scale, like grow one tree or three trees. If you like, peaches and apricots, nectarines and plums, and you grow three trees of each, that's a dozen trees. But you can learn a lot. Those dozen trees will be your teacher to learn a lot of important steps about what it takes. But then once you find something you love, hold on, go for it, sir. So step one is grow what you love. Step two would be start small and grow into it. Yep. Yeah. All right. That, that's really important because I, I had a business I started in 2004 called Urban Farm Nursery here in Phoenix. We were growing plant starts. Rather than growing 5,000 plant starts the first year, we grew 80,000 plants the first year. Oh, Lord. And it, it was magical. It was absolutely magical. But what we ran into was January was beautiful. February, it rained every weekend. So at the end of February, people weren't buying plants because they buy them on the the weekends at the nurseries. And we ended up doing a fire sale, pretty much just giving all these plants away. That is a good reason not to start big, start small. Right. And one of the most amazing things is that under the, the realm of agriculture, we have a tremendous amount of crop. Like, Mm -hmm. I love pecan. Mm -hmm. I love peaches. I love plums. I love coffee. I love tea. I love avocados. I'm growing all of those right now. And I have, for example, 86 coffee trees planted. But especially important for me as a scientist, I have 33 different varieties. Because we really don't know yet what's going to be the really great variety for growing in this specific microclimate of Southern California. So when I visit Arizona, I love pecans. And I've been in the pecan country up higher in the mountains of Arizona. And now I'm going to be planting 20 pecan trees at my farm Ah, here in Vista. 
I've ordered five each of four varieties. They've confirmed three of those varieties and one is maybe, but I'll plant those opposite my plant, one of my plantings of coffee. And they're going to replace a line of eucalyptus trees, which oh, were really only beautiful. causing me problem. And these trees will grow large. I'll plant them at big spacing for me, which is 12 feet. We're probably going to end up putting water harvesting tanks in between them while they're young trees because we're working to harvest as much rainwater as we can. We're aiming to store 5,000 gallons this year. Wow. And that's going to take either a 5,000 gallon tank or 16, 330 gallon pallet bottles of which I have two right now. All right, right? cool. So step, let's jump into step three. What is step three in starting? So step, step three is once we have kind of an idea of what we want to grow, we need to know where in the country that will grow. I just talked with a group of students from eight states and most of them wanted to move to a different place. So we have to think about what will grow in the place you want to be. One of my friends is moving to Asheville, North Carolina. Well, they have a real winter in Asheville. They have, um, but it's not as strong as in Maine, way up further north. Right. You know? So there's, there's different subsets of what will work there. So we have to look at that. But once we've selected a location, one of the things you could do is if you're in the United States, connect with the Cooperative Extension Office for a list of crops that are grown there, right? Oh, yeah. For yeah. example, every county in the nation publishes a crop report every year of what's I grown within that. the county. Mm -hmm. Here in San Diego County in California, there are 600 different crops on our annual crop list. Whoa! Right. It's, it's a pretty big number, though we include nursery crops. Mm -hmm. So that has about half of the number, but then we have different fruits, even avocados. Most people know the Haas avocado. Mm -hmm. I have 30 different types of avocados. I'm going to grow in my 120 trees because I want to harvest avocados again all year round, rather than just in the season of Haas, which has become the de facto leader in, of the pack. One of the things you're doing is you're starting slow to a certain extent by experimenting with all of these different kinds of crops to see which ones are going to work the best, right? Yes, that's the key. Mm -hmm. So start small. Once you have a location, then start to investigate what grows in that location. One of my favorite things is just to drive around in the neighborhood of, of a piece of property that somebody asked me to look at. I'll drive around for several blocks around them to see what people are successfully doing in their, their properties. And it's like, oh, okay. Ah, I don't see any of this, but I saw a lot of that. What does that tell me? So when we think about the one, two, three, four, you know, one is selecting what we like to eat. Yep. Another is figuring out what we want to grow, but where we want to grow. It. If you haven't figured that out, that's a very important part. If you do have a location, one of my students in my last class said, oh, I have this location, my parents own land. And I thought, oh, nice. Okay, that's a great place for you to start. But even there, even though you have five acres, you should start on about a quarter of an acre investigating for at least two or three years 
unless you really have a burning desire for one thing and you know it will work there, you've got to test it. You've got to figure out what will work here. For example, here in California, where I'm growing avocados, Haas avocados are part of what I'm growing. But we realize that Haas avocados are going to be lost to commerce in the world because of global warming. They hate excess heat. They do not like it over 100 degrees. They drop their fruits. So here in California, we're looking at avocados that, number one, give us fruit 52 weeks of the year, but number two, are more heat tolerant because it's growing hotter. Got it. Okay. And then the next step. Well, the next step is to, is to go for it, right? Start growing. I have a client, for example, right now that they bought 48 acres of wow. avocado grove that was turned off. So it has a whole infrastructure in it. About half of those trees were bringing back to life. But then that only means they have about 12 acres of trees. So we have to come up with new crops for 36 acres. And this year, we just started with three acres for them. Next year, it'll probably be six acres, you know. But they have plenty of time. They're young and they, they're stepping into it step by step rather than rushing into it. I know of a grower recently who planted 3,000 coffee trees in a spot that I would have said coffee won't do well here. And after a year and a half, he pulled out the last survivors and put oh. in lemon trees. And that was a quarter of a million dollar investment that he had to write off. I was going to say that would have been expensive. Yep. And it is. So step by step, if we go very carefully, for example, I'm looking at the fruit trees in the background that you have. Yes. And those trees could have a productive lifetime of 50 years, right? The in average. The desert, in the desert, it's about 20 years, but. Right. 20 to 50 years, let's say. Okay. Right. And so here in California, the trees I'm looking at planting on, on the property I'm buying can produce for 50 years easily. So wow. part of my timeline is these trees are going to take care of my kids when I'm long gone mm -hmm. in the, the dust of helping people become farmers. Right. Wow. All right. And one of the things when I was getting into actually farming and growing food to market, a couple of things that I did is, well, the first thing I did is I started looking to see where there might be a market at. So I grow something, what can I do with it? And one of the suggestions I get, got along the way, and this was probably 2000, 2001, is talk to local chefs, see what they want. And so I did a combination of local chefs and a farmer's market booth. How can looking to see where your product is wanted, how can that inform you on getting, getting growing? Well, I think that one of the really important things that we need to understand is what I call affinity marketing, mm -hmm. right? So the World Wide Web is wide open. You could, put, you could market something over one of the tools like Instagram or website or something and reach the whole world, but the whole world can't buy your product. Mm -hmm. It's really a smaller group. And how do we develop an affinity for that group? So one of my clients for farm consulting is a firefighter in a city in Southern California called Riverside. 
Uh right? And he has 12 acres of avocados. And I helped him plant coffee on that. But he was like, what do I do with my avocados? And I said, how many fire stations in your city? And he thought for a second, he says, 126. Whoa, 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 Hunter, time out, time out. Did you tell him to go sell to the fire stations because they need to eat? Pretty much. Wow. This was what I call an affinity group. Uh He was was already a known, accepted member of this group as, as as a senior firefighter with, you know, he wasn't just brand new. He knew a lot of the people in many of these different houses, but he had a great marketing edge. I'm growing avocados just for firefighters. Yeah. Right. So what I told him is, why don't you plan? Because he would go to work twice a week for three days, three Mm -hmm. days on, two days off, three days on. Right. Why don't you plan to make a delivery to a group of the firehouses each time you go in, right? Start a couple hours early and take each firehouse like a 20 pound box of avocados, right? Well, they make guacamole in the house, but they also right. take some home to their families. They started buying 20 pounds of, you know, 20 to 40 pounds a week per firehouse. Wow. Times 126 firehouses. That's, he sold all of his avocados inside an affinity that he was already well-recognized in. Yeah. So this affinity could be a lot of different things. It could be a community group, a religious group, all sorts of different types of associations or workplaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, just who do you know? The best part about food is that everybody has to eat, right? So yeah. everybody is potentially in a cohort of an affinity, right? Now, some of those are in the cohort of what can we get out of the freezer at Costco, right? I We once had a young lady visit us who said she was a vegetarian. And I sent her, I said, oh my God, you've come to heaven. We have 60 different vegetables on the farm right now. And I gave my daughter and her a basket and said, go pick whatever you want. We'll cook it for dinner. And she was like, Walking around the plants, like if they touched her body, she would turn to stone. And I was like, this looks weird. And then later we began to find out that she didn't eat vegetables. She was a carbitarian. She only ate pasta oh. and bread. Wow. And that the reason she was left with us for two weeks by her parents was to kind of cure her of, <laughs> of that. Because we had nothing in those categories, hardly anything and everything in the vegetable category. Well, now she's a beautiful mom. She's lost like excess weight that was not contributing to her. And Mm -hmm. she's very happy because she's discovered what she likes to eat. And she's sharing that with her child now and her husband. And, and it was a process, but at the beginning, she didn't know what she wanted to eat. And, and so with an affinity, your affinity may not even know that they want to buy your great peaches, but once they taste them, they're going to be clamoring to be on the list of people who get some. Yeah. Nice. All right. For those of you out there, if you want to throw us, throw Scott questions, uh, please drop them in the Q and a. All right. So we've kind of done an overview of like steps to get in. I'm ready what do I do next? It's like, how do I get started? Well, 
one of the biggest things that comes up is people ask about buying land and mm-hmm. buying land is very expensive and especially so, in california well yes especially in california but especially in parts of new york or parts of florida all over the country the the value of land is very relative okay. it has to do with when how close you are to to things that people want you oh, know yes. like the ocean or the lake or the city but there's good land available every place in the country for agriculture especially because a lot of agriculture has switched from small family farms to big commercial farms and they've left behind small parcels of land oh yes right so and it's very very much a better investment to take over a piece of land that's been farmed by someone else than to be the pioneer of turning up a piece of raw land into a farm right because if you can get a well that's already working that's like gold if you can get farmland that's already had thoughtful treatment by a farmer cultivator to shape it and handle the drainage and handle erosion and harvest the water. Wow. So here in California, we're in drought right now. And I'm teaching all of my clients how to implement water harvesting features on their farmland, because we can no longer afford to let rainwater just run off of our farm. Yeah. How about if we penetrate at least 50% of it, maybe even 80 or 90% of it into our soil where it's stored for our crops, we can cut the need for watering by 50% by doing water harvesting on the land. And then if we were smart about how we farm the land, we can cut the need for water dramatically as well. Things like how we water, when we water, how much we water, and especially do we mulch over what we water to protect it from erosion, from right. evaporation. Mm-hmm. So there's some, some thoughts for you. Yeah, perfect. All right. So how does one go about finding land? Because that seems to be in, you know, in logical steps, that seems to be the next step. It's like, all right, do I buy land? Do I rent land? Do I use somebody else's land? Well, absolutely. Finding land is the key because, you know, we can grow a little bit on, on nothing. Like I've built gardens on asphalt parking lots with by putting down mulch mm-hmm. and building boxes and then putting soil in them. And people go, how did you find all this soil in the middle of the city? And I, I move the mulch apart and I say, there's no soil. This is an asphalt parking lot. Nice. Right. And they're like, oh, but the truth is there's there's farmable land in almost every part of the United States that is looking for a cultivator. That's the very best piece is in some states like Illinois, they have a program where an apprentice farmer can apprentice to a farmer who's getting ready to retire. And and the state will, if you do that for a year and a half to two years, they'll give you a low interest loan to buy that farm and keep it in business, Uh, right? Oh, that's brilliant. I think that's very brilliant. But in, in other states that we haven't gotten there yet. So we need to look at where land is available. If we can't buy it, one of the best things to do is lease it. Now, unfortunately, when we lease land, there's a disincentive for planting trees 
because trees are a many-year crop that mm-hmm. increases in value, and we'd really like to own the land underneath them. So vegetables were how I got started. I've only been farming for 48 years, and, and so <laughs> far, those 48 years, I've been on leased land. So I only started planting trees on my farm this year when I made a deal with the owner that I'm buying it from that I could start to develop the way I'll pay for it before I actually start paying the full price. And so I encourage people to look at where is land going that needs a steward. So we have public land, schoolyards that are closed down, all sorts of interesting facilities, even in the middle of a city, land that's owned by the government oftentimes has a water meter to it, but they don't know what to do with it. But you could lease it and use it. You can lease land from a private owner. And you can also begin to look for land that you can buy. And you don't need to buy 100 acres. You know, if you start small with only one acre, you can really focus your efforts on doing that one acre to its maximum potential. Mm -hmm. And your overall incoming cost is lower you know i had a uh, i'm i'm not remembering who it was but i had a flower farmer on my podcast a few years ago who was on like 10 acres and she lost it and went down to one acre and she told me in the podcast she said greg one acre is better yeah i agree and the reason was it wasn't so much to manage she actually was able to, you know, downsize her business so that she could grow everything that she needed in the space of the one acre. So, so you don't need lots of land. Well, we got one question here from Andrew Mm -hmm. and he talks about mulching his fruit trees with cut up branches and leaves, mostly leaves. This is a very good mulch because it's bringing the leaves right back to the tree which drew those minerals and nutrients into the leaves from very deep. And now you're putting them on the soil and it will reduce the the pressure of water by reducing evaporation and can help your tree. But don't forget to give it some food as well. There you go. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now we have some land. And one of the things that two of my friends, Benjamin Farr and Jen Nelkin, Jen's with uh, Gotham Greens. I've known her for decades, actually. They're growing food on rooftops. So, you know, you know, get outside of the box of where you, you know, where you're going to think about getting your land from. It doesn't always have to be a conventional piece of land, right? Absolutely. And, and one of the things is think about how your desire to farm can help other people solve problems that they have. So, for example, we have had a decline in the population of elementary students in the United States. Our our numbers are down. And so there are a lot of school campuses that sit empty. A school district can never really sell a campus because their population might go back up and they'll need it again. So, but school campuses have water, they have fences, they have all sorts of things. And I've driven past so many that are just sitting empty, doing nothing, gathering problems rather than making solutions. You know, a friend of mine started Arizona Microgreens about 10 years ago, and he 
found a school that was sitting there languishing that had a greenhouse on it. So we actually went in with them and worked on worked a deal so that he actually leased long-term leased that greenhouse. Yep. And I was just talking with a group of students. One was from Detroit and I have had some experience with doing work in Detroit and Detroit's population has downsized by 75% from 40 years ago. Yeah. And so they have more high schools than they have students. So they've decided to create one of their high schools to just be an agricultural training high school. Really? Right. And I was very interested in supporting them and making that campus a demonstration farm. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, that's one thing. Another part of Detroit where we eventually did an event was a casino that's close to downtown had a two acre lot across the street and it was this ugly mess. And they thought, what happens if we start an urban farm incubator there that we support financially and that helps urban farms start all over the city? And now that's a very spectacular success because people need support. They need ideas. They need education about how to step forward in their, in their path. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things I love about you, and we've known each other, what, 15 years? Man, At least. Time, man, time flies. And one of the things I really appreciate about you is how you think outside of the box. So <laughs> thanks, thanks for I, these great ideas. I, I'm looking over here above my front door. I have a sign that says, think outside, no box required. <laughs> right. There you go. There you go. So if somebody was interested, so t- tell everybody a little bit about what you do and how you do it. Because so, you you can help people start farms, right? Well, I've been farming here in California, part of the time in Mexico, for 48 years. I started in college at UC Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. I, I made about half my income and paid half my college costs with farming five back or side yards. And basil? Basil was one of my big crops. It, actually, that's been one of my most productive crops for years because it's a, what we call a cut and come again. Yes. So for a very starting grower, one of the things is to grow cut and come again crops because they, they deliver more than one harvest. When you plant one radish seed, you get one radish. D- job done. Plant another seed, get another radish. But if you plant a collard or kale or chard plant, or basil. They, well, basil is a little bit different. Collard, mm-hmm. kale, and chard you can harvest leaves off these plants as they grow in height. Oh, yes. Okay. And for up to like six months or more. Now, basil is a little bit different because it's a structural plant. Each time we harvest a tip, it causes two tips to come out. So we have to think a little bit more how we're shaping the plant. And occasionally we whack it back to start over. But I've grown... 80,000 pounds of basil on four acres of land one summer, you know, that's a lot of basil. And we, we got an average of $2 a pound for hundred pound quantities, but as much as $8 a pound in 10 pound quantities, you know, so we sold across a broad spectrum of prices. Mm -hmm. We had a big client that would take like a thousand pounds a week. Oh my gosh. 
and that's a lot of basil. Pesto, baby. Pesto for days, let me tell you. But so, the nice thing is that that plant harvest gives you harvest for like four months rather than oh, yes. once. Yeah, yeah, cool. So you actually, and you can coach people through this process of starting a farm, right? Well, now where I find myself is that to protect my body, I've reduced my work on row crops because I was spending a lot of time on my knees and my knees are still in great shape, but I don't want to wreck them. And friends of mine have. And so I've, I've stood up, I'm doing more tree crops and I do consulting for about 80% of my work. So I help other people discover the farmer in them. That's a pretty amazing process. Just today, I went over to be in a photo session for the website of a farm that I'm the general manager for. A young couple bought a 20-acre organic farm, has 20 years of history, produces 60 different crops, and they know nothing about Oh, my gosh. Wow. Zero, right? But they're smart enough to know that they should get the best help. Yeah. And so I put a whole team of people in place there. And today they, they, they called on all of us because they wanted to get photographs showing the team. And that was really wonderful. But it's step by step. First, we're cleaning up. Then we're feeding everything. We're fixing the irrigation system. Mm-hmm. And soon we'll be planting new things. Got it. So, Scott, how do people get a hold of you? Well... One great way is through email. Uh-huh. That's Scott A. Murray at sbcglobal.net. I'm going to type that into the chat here. Scott okay. A. Murray at SBC. Oops. And that is a great way to, to get a hold of me. Dot N-E-T. And, and one of the things that I specialize in doing is, is helping people to find their way in this agricultural jungle, yeah. right? One of the big things I advise is, is start small. You have plenty of time. You know, when I was very young and farming and had three young children, I needed mm-hmm. to grow annual crops on leased land as fast as I could to have the money coming in. Now I can afford to invest in trees, and that's a very good way to go. But it's all step by step. So we have to start small and learn our craft before we invest all of our family fortune in Uh, what we're doing. Or as I pointed out earlier, waste all of my family fortune on a project that that went south. Well, thank you so much. Yep, it can happen. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. We really appreciate it. Once again, your email address is? Scott A. Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y, at sbcglobal.net. It's very old. But it works. It works. There you go. There hey, you go. it's always a pleasure to hang out with you, Greg, and and the amazing community of affinity that, that you've attracted with your work. Yep. And folks, if you haven't listened to any of Greg's podcasts, you have mm. to listen to the three I've done for him. Oh, yes. You can Now it's can, four. Oh, now it's four. You can search in his podcast and find the name of the, the interviewee, Scott Murray, and there's three different ones there you can look at. One's on avocado growing high density, coffee growing high density, growing carbon drawdown with growing. And yep. this, this uh, session today is going to become a podcast. Yes, as well. it is. Awesome. Thank you so very much. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Hey, and everybody keep the questions flowing and figure out how you can make a difference. 
because it's everybody in the country that's going to save us from global warming. And one of my big things now is the the landscape tune-up by just mulching, or well, by by pruning, feeding, cultivating your soil, and mulching, mm-hmm. you can increase the healthier plants by fifty percent at least their carbon drawdown at least as well, and save yeah. water at the same time. Yeah. So, what a great treat to hang out with you, Greg. Right send back at my, you, man. Send my best to that great uh, team you have there, and we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, everybody, for showing up. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.